0: Process Book Club podcast on gaming the future, technologies for intelligent voluntary cooperation. Co-authored by Christine Peterson, Mark Miller, and me, Alison Dibman. In this episode, we discuss chapter nine, Welcome New Players, Artificial Intelligences. Here's a brief chapter summary, so you know roughly what to expect. In this chapter, we foreshadow how an increasingly intelligent game could be increasingly beneficial for its players. The fear of an intelligent takeover by an AGI can be divided into the threat of 1st strike instabilities on the path and that of a successful takeover by an AGI singleton. The better we get at incorporating AI into our multipolar voluntary cooperative architecture in a decentralized manner, the better we can be at avoiding both of these scenarios. Where will this feature lead? That's what we're going to find out next time. But for now, our special guests uh, include Trent McConaughey, the founder of Ocean Protocol, and Steve Omohundro, AI and security specialists. Concepts we discuss with our group include recent AI developments, centralized versus decentralized AI scenarios, personal AI assistance, AI DAOs, and an ecosystem of multiple AI agents that hold each other in check. If you like the book, follow it at Fawcett Institute on Substack. There will also soon be a physical version available as well. For now, please enjoy this episode. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Alison. Uh, you mentioned personal AI. I'm happy to talk about that, but I actually made some slides uh, just about more generally what's going on right now with AI, where is it likely to go, what are some of the trends, and how can we achieve the kind of the the cooperative technology we've been talking about here. And I'll give my take on it. I would love any feedback uh, and so on. It's maybe about 15 minutes. I put the slides uh, in the chat, so uh, there are a bunch of links in there to various papers and things. Uh, so right now, the uh, AI is really being driven by uh, transformers, but large language transformers is sort of revolutionizing all over the place. And just to sort of have the context, uh, here's the circuit diagram for these. This is the circuit diagram that's changing the world at the moment. And this is the GPT-style uh, transformer where you have uh, some words coming in over on the left, left column, and it's trying to predict the next word. And it's organized as a series of layers, and each layer uh, just has two types of operations. The first is called self-attention. It's basically uh, looking at uh, neighboring layers. The second is uh, multilayer perceptron, and that's where the knowledge is stored. People don't really understand exactly how this works. There's a lot of work going on trying to analyze it, and but they're doing amazing things and all sorts of things. And so here's a, a little bit sort of the history of this revolution. It, it really started in 2017 with the attention is all you need paper, which uh, applied this to translation. 2018 came BERT, which is just the sort of uh, encoding portion of that. And both uh, Google and Microsoft started incorporating it in their search engines. 2018 saw GPT, GPT-2, GPT-3 coming from OpenAI, which is the generative kind of language model. And uh, in 2020, Google did T5, which combined both the encoding and the generative models. 2020, people started applying it to vision problems, the vision transformer. It started doing state-of-the-art there. 2020, it also got applied to theorem proving, uh, the OpenAI GPTF uh, program. 2021, we had AlphaFold2 using uh, transformer ideas with other ideas also for protein folding very successfully. 2021, we had codex code generation, uh, systems like this that automatically generate code based on little descriptions of the task. Also in 2021, we had decision transformers where these techniques are starting to uh, perhaps replace reinforcement learning for solving uh, decision problems. In the last month or two, we've seen just a whole slew of uh, amazing new systems coming out based on this core technology. Uh, Google had Flamingo, which takes as input images, video, and text, and it can make good reasonable commentary on it. The Palm model is the currently the largest uh, dense language model based on this technology, and it's just doing amazing things. It's showing new capabilities that haven't been seen in smaller models. And then Gato uh, is a single transformer, which does 604 different tasks, including manipulating physical robots, playing Atari games, commenting on images, all with the same transformer model. And that has a lot of people buzzing about, oh, my goodness, is this the beginning of AGI? And so... Uh, so it's very exciting times. Uh, Transformers still have a lot of problems. They have a tendency to lie, to confabulate. Uh, they don't have memory in their uh, simplest form. And so they only have, they're sort of like the the lead character in, uh, in Memento, that movie, where they only remember what's happening recently. Uh, they can't give attribution for the things that they say. They will generate toxic speech and biased speech. They have very poor reasoning. They don't have a good model of the listener. And they're very expensive to compute. But every one of these, there's a whole bunch of groups all over the world uh, trying to work on it. Um, uh, there are ways to connect uh, transformers to databases so that they can look things up in the database and they can tell you, you know, say, give a Wikipedia reference to something they say. So that it gets rid of some of the confabulation. Uh, there are memorizing transformers which uh, build up a memory. There are uh, things which try and uh, avoid toxic speech. Uh, reasoning is an area that's of great interest and great importance. They discovered that just by modifying the prompt, if you put in the phrase, let's think step-by-step, step, that dramatically improves the reasoning capability of these models. Um, and then there are groups uh, trying to build listener models and many, many variants which are uh, better uh, computationally. A really striking result came out in 2020, again, from OpenAI, that these transformer models obey very regular and precise scaling laws. That... Uh, if you try and uh, estimate the uh, loss of these models as a function of the compute, of the data set size, or of the number of parameters, they're power laws, and a uh, very, very regular. And since that time, the larger models seem to fit right on these curves. So that was very interesting. That's significant because it means if you want a certain performance, you can figure out how much compute you're going to have to budget for that. And so that has really, I think, driven a- OpenAI's uh, planning for the future. Uh, people now applied it to vision as well. Vision laws have their own power law. Uh, vision models have their own power laws with a different exponent, but uh, very similar. Uh, similarly for game playing. Similarly for care proving. And so these scaling laws are sort of uh, shaking up a, a lot of people's thinking. And you can project forward. When do these scaling laws predict that we'll hit human performance in various tasks? And uh, most of them, it's say within a factor of a hundred or a thousand, and it's roughly you know a decade, some, something like that. So. That sort of suggests we're coming close to significant uh, uh, AGI. You can also look at, well, what is the computational power of the human brain? Uh, open philanthropy did this very nice study using four different aspects of the biology of the human brain. And their conclusion was that the human brain appears to do about 10 to the 15th flops uh, as a median sort of estimate. And it's very unlikely to be doing more than 10 to the 21th flops. So that range sort of tells us where we're at. How does that compare to current compute? Well, Nvidia is just about to release their Hopper uh, AI uh, engine, the uh, H100, which they claim has 32 petaflops, or uh, petaflop is 10 to the 15 flops, a floating point eight, which is sort of a you know a little bit of a limited thing, but maybe comparable to to the brain thing for 249 thousand dollars. So it's almost surely that this system is powerful enough to do what the human brain does if we have the right software. And so that also suggests we're sort of in the compute area, very close to a powerful transformative AI. So uh, people are very interested. When is this going to happen? And they're making various bets and all kinds of online, you know, back and forth, Gary Marcus versus, you know, other people. And so uh, the prediction market metacalculus has uh, two uh, markets running a uh, one on sort of a weekly general AI, uh, very powerful would be transformative possibly, but maybe not as strong as full AGI. And that one, the prediction is currently at 2028 and then they have a stronger one, which is more like full AGI and their predictions at 2038. So, you know, who knows? It's a, it's a, a market of people betting, but, uh, it gives you a sense that sometime in the next few decades, we're likely to see transformative AI, uh, there's a range of people who think it's coming, not coming soon or ever, and some who think it's coming soon, some who think it's going to be really good, and some who just think it's going to be really bad. In the lower right corner here, we have uh, Eliezer Joukowsky, who's the head of Mary. He thinks it's coming very soon, and it's going to be very bad. In the upper right, we have uh, Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI. He thinks it's coming really soon, but it's going to be really good. And then over in the lower corner, we have Robin Hanson, who was uh, on this, this group a little while ago, and he thinks it'll be a long time and that it won't be so good. And then up here, we have, oh, Gary Marcus, that he thinks it's going to be a long time, but that it'll basically be good. So this is the sort of discussion and dialogue that's going on out there. How do we prepare for this? Um, a number of years ago, I wrote a paper called The Basic AI Drives, which is, Uh, If you have a free rational agent AI that's very powerful, then for many goals, it will develop universal sub-goals, for example, self-preservation. And the story people sometimes tell is if you make a robot butler uh, whose job it is to serve coffee, uh, it will try and keep itself from being turned off because uh, you can't serve the coffee if you're dead. Uh, Similarly, these systems will try and uh, get resources because most goals do better if you have more resources. They'll do self-replication because more copies lower their risk. And they'll try and preserve their goals because from their current perspective, that's what they want to do. So all of these are sort of just natural outcomes with very little reasoning. For And, and some of the current language models are starting to exhibit some of these things, which is quite interesting. Um, these could be harmful in unexpected ways and if they're misaligned with human interests. And so a lot of people now are working on alignment. That's sort of the, ter- the phrase, which is try and build these AI systems and folds which are aligned with what humans care about. Uh, I think that's great. I'm all in favor of that. But I think, and I think as we've been discussing here, in addition to that, making systems that want to do good things for humans, we also need to create a safety infrastructure. We need to make it, make sure that there aren't temptations to do bad things. And so how do we do that? How do we build a safety infrastructure? I propose something called the Safe AI Scaffolding Strategy for this, which I talk a lot about at this website down at the bottom. Um, But it seems to me we have humanity basically has three superpowers we can use to control uh, powerful AIs. The laws of physics, you know, things like the speed, you can't go faster than the speed of light. You can't create matter and energy out of nothing. Uh, There are limits on memory, compute, and communication. Mathematical proof, where we can prove properties of uh, different different, uh, model systems. And then cryptography. Uh cryptography, you know, is is fundamental to our current world, to fundamental to the blockchain. And we've talked a lot about it here. It's also on the verge of crisis. There's something called the quantum apocalypse, that if quantum computing gets a little bit better, it will probably um, uh, destroy all the current public key technologies. And there's a variety of post-quantum public key technologies that are coming out, but they're looking pretty weak. Just last week. Three of the six proposals for post-quantum uh, public key have new vulnerabilities in them. Symmetric key looks a little bit stronger, but we still don't have a mathematical proof. And so in the face of very powerful AIs, uh, that's a bit worrisome. The one-time pad is the oldest cryptographic system that's been you know analyzed, and that's provably secure. And in fact, it's the only provably secure system. So some friends and I are trying to figure out, can we use uh, one-time pads to do much of what we want from uh, cryptography? But I think of these three, mathematical proof is our real powerful tool. And we've talked a lot about in this group how to use them. We had a wonderful talk uh, last week um, about how do we use proof to make software better, to make things more secure, to make our, our infrastructure better. So I thought I'd give a sort of overall you know, view of what does it mean to have formalization? What does it mean to have proof? And how does this fit in with AI? Natural language actually encodes almost all of the elements of uh, formal reasoning and formal proof, but in a kind of informal way. And so human language was invented somewhere around 150,000 years ago. That's really the beginnings of formalizing the world. Aristotle tried to make those rules precise in 350 B.C. Euclid introduced the axiomatic method and did it for geometry in 320 B.C., Boole in 1854 created uh, propositional calculus. Cantor started set theory in 1874. Frege invented first-order logic in 1879. Axiomatic set theory started in 1908. And we had the full Zermelo-Frankel set theory um, with the axiom of choice in 1925. That's the current foundation for mathematics. And that is sufficient to encode all of current physics, all of current engineering, all of the current computer science. Gödel showed some limitations on these systems in 1931. Uh, We had Turing in 1936, who formalized computation. We had Church, uh, who formalized functional computation in 1936 also. The typed lambda calculus showed up in 1940, which is an alternative system, alternative to set theory. Um, The first uh, theorem prover was the logic theory uh, theory machine, which did propositional calculus in 1956. The first first first-order provers came in the 1960s. And the idea of NP completeness came in 1971, and people suddenly felt like, oh, maybe theorem proving isn't going to be so easy or possible. Uh, the uh, they started moving toward proof checkers. The LCF uh, proof checker came in 1972. Uh, in 1992, there were a whole series of uh, SAT solvers, sort of propositional solvers, but uh, for NP-complete problems, but surprisingly easy to to um, uh, to solve. Uh, in 1993 came the QED math manifesto, which argued that all of mathematics should be formalized and machine checkable. And in around 2000, we had a whole bunch of proof assistants, uh, which are in use today, HOL, MISAR, Metamath, Coke, Queen, Isabel, and various chunks of mathematics have been encoded in these. And just to give a flavor of it, Metamath is one that is based on zermelo uh ZFC uh um and it's a proof checker is very simple 300 lines of python code uh there have been about uh, 38,000 theorems proven in this roughly i would say uh, an undergraduate mathematics uh degree the de Bruyne factor which is how much bigger is a formal st- statement of something versus say the textbook statement is about a factor of four so pretty simple and over on the right here i'd the entire formalization of zfc this is propositional calculus here's first order calculus and gears uh the the set theory uh, and this is a direct transcription from their encoding in uh, in ASCII. So it's a very clean, simple system, and it's performed the basis for many of the theorem provers. So starting in 2020, uh, these big, large language transformer models have been applied to the task of theorem proving. And GPTF from uh, OpenAI uh, was able to uh, train on about 36,000 metamath theorems and they were able to prove about 56% of the held out theorems uh, a few months ago the hypertree proof search uh, uh, system was published uh, which is an alpha zero style uh, mct uh, markup um, uh, markup chain uh, tree search transformer and it's uh, on online training it's able to prove 82% of metamath and about 58% of lean which is another theorem so those are quite striking and amazing results uh, uh, Christian Zegetti is at Google and, uh, he's having an, uh, he, they recently published a paper on auto formalization, which is taking, you know, uh, math books and, uh, computer manuals and language manuals and creating formal models directly from them using language models. And he says he's willing to make a bet that by 2029, uh, they'll have systems which are, um, on the same order of mathematical competency as, strong human mathematicians. So that's a pretty striking statement. So just to conclude, I would say our takeaways here are that uh, powerful AI looks like it's likely to come in the next few decades. This will be a transformative event for humanity. Uh, Mathematical proof is our best tool for making this AI safe and trustable. Good theorem proving and auto formalization and so on looks like it's going to be likely within a decade that this is likely to cause a flurry of provably correct uh, AI-generated software, hardware, engineering, a wide range of things. That to make sure all of that is safe and uh, fits into human society in a good way, I believe we need to design provably safe cooperative infrastructure along the lines that this book is all about that makes use of these new powers. And I think we should start designing them now before the theorem provers are here, under the assumption that when they do show up we'll be ready to deploy them to build a, a safe infrastructure so that's that's the story
2: wow uh wonderful thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on you know why do we even talk about ai that was really great um i, I also love the, the little crowd runs um, i think there were so many recent interesting twitter polls where people try to group people and then like the new regroupings of where people stand in terms of timelines and and uh, and and how optimistic they are. So thanks a lot. And um, without getting too much into the discussion yet, because we also, or at least I would love to hear a little bit more also from your own personal AIs, more as a, you know, potential safety strategy. And I want to quickly give up the stage to trend, because I'm not sure uh, how uh, long time you guys have. So I just want to make sure that, you know, for the time that you, we are all here, we at least get to hear the Kind of like the, the tidbits and then we get into the discussion. Okay, Trent, I made you co-host just in case you want to sh- uh, share uh, images as we go along. I know that, you know, uh, what I really love about your post anyway, like in general, people, um, I think should really check out Trent's blog post series. Um, I think Trent writes really prolifically, very crisp, short, um, and usually with, uh, with really good image imagery as well. So Trent, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have a few questions here that, um, yeah, I would want to ask you this. Basically, I think you, um, then Ali Yaya and Fred Erzam wrote, um, like at least a series of related blog posts. I'm going to try to share them all here. That is trying to think a little bit about how the uh, emerging web three space, uh, can contribute, um, um or like how, what, what happens when AI meets the emerging web three space? Um, now and uh, in the and in the longer term future. So, um, yeah, you wrote this really wonderful series on AI DAOs. and the first question uh, that uh, obviously is um, is striking is what are AI dolls? Uh, can you bring us up to speed on like you know what can we expect there? Uh, what makes them so powerful, and, um, and and how would we get there?
3: Sure. Um, so so thanks everyone for having me, and great to be here. And in, in general, I don't have. Time constraints. It's a Sunday evening here in Berlin, Germany. So uh, happy to join in in the discussion later too. Um, First, I I think it's let's talk about DAOs. The DAOs you might hear about in blockchain land these days tend to be a very specific type of thing. It's typically a group of twenty to one hundred fifty people that get together that think that there aren't rules and it's kind of anarchy, right? Um, But they're definitely Dunbar DAOs. um, You know, limited by Dunbar's number. Um There are other DAOs, though, too. You know, overall, DAO is short for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And um Bitcoin can readily be called a DAO. It's decentralized, it's autonomous, and it's an organization in that it is coordinating humans. And overall, um basically, any blockchain system that has incentives is coordinating humans and can be framed as a DAO. And it's sort of like the definition of life or the definition of AI, you know, Throw a rock at a different, yeah, and you'll find a different definition, you know, 20 rocks, you have know, 20 different definitions, but there's correlation and uh, having a few definitions, I think it's useful pragmatically, right? Um, so same thing with DAOs, but, uh, practically speaking, um, there's probably the two most common ones right now are, uh, protocol DAOs, uh, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, otherwise, or Dunbar DAOs. Um, you can also, though, think about a DAO as simply a technology that is used to help coordinate humans. And um, how could that group of humans be shaped? It could be shaped like a soccer club. It could be shaped like um, a a, a top-down corporation. It could be shaped like a city or a family or a country um, or a co-op. And it could be a small co-op or a big co-op. And um, then the DAO technology is there simply to help coordinate. Rather than using pencil and paper, you now have decentralized network with state with digital signatures and other cryptography tools. So basically it's a community with a very low friction wallet. You don't have to go and open a bank account together and sign a bunch of, um, uh, wet contracts. You have crisp, dry code contracts. And so that's, uh, you know, the, the main thing that's really driving DAOs. So even the DAOs you see d- today, mostly the Dunbar DAOs, that's just one type, but there's a the protocol DAOs, et cetera. Okay. So that's a, a way to, t- to start framing it. And before I get into the AI part, um, I'm going to start to edge into um, a concept from AI that all of you are surely familiar with. Um, And I'll just uh, uh, start with basically from a blog post that I wrote um, called Can Blockchains Go Wrong? And I guess I'll share my screen here. Um, And um, basically, as an aside, I wrote this post to kind of um, nudge the blockchain world into thinking about how to take more responsibility when they design tokenized ecosystems uh, because incentives are wildly powerful, right? I don't have to convince you guys that. And um, so I started off the post um, by, uh, actually, by background, um, I spent about 20 years in the world of just pure AI applied to computer chip design, basically uh, AI to drive Moore's law. Um, We've heard a lot about even some of Steve's examples where how Moore's law is helping drive AI with the new NVIDIA blocks, et cetera. Uh, I was doing the other side around where I was using AI to help develop CAD tools so that TSMC could develop its next generation transistors and so on. And um, along the way, I also got really deeply into creative AI, you know, genetic programming type, creative AI, et cetera. And I found that it was really, really hard to specify what is it, what is it that I wanted. Um, I would um, add, uh, you know, write maybe a couple of objectives, a couple of constraints, and then um, run the system and it would go and give me garbage. And um, I would try, I would add a new constraint to fix the problem. And there would be another piece of garbage. And it went over and over and over again. So it was literally whack-a-mole, like this guy here. So so that was me with adding constraints. And this went on for about half a year. And then finally, uh, I first of all did it via startup. And we actually de-scoped what we did in the startup because our customer said, we don't need synthesizers. We just want optimizers. We just want to wiggle some parameters. Because, yeah, it wasn't that advanced yet in the field that way. So um, I paused that work and continued it again later in my PhD. And in my PhD, I um, found a different way around the problem where I didn't have to specify the objectives directly, but instead implicitly by specifying the building blocks and their constraints. So um, anyway, that was the, cha- the point here is that designing incentives is hard. And I mean, even in the book you guys have been reading, um, it, it it comes up again and again and again in various ways of framing it, including in this chapter. Um now let's go to Nick Bostrom's Paperclip Maximizer, right? And uh, yeah, this is what I hinted at as a thing that you guys are all surely familiar with. Um, but basically, this AI, where its only goal is to make as many paperclips as possible, uh, it will realize quickly that um, uh, if it's better off if there's you know humans. So uh, it might as well just convert the humans, the atoms of the humans, towards paperclips, and just you know lots of paperclips way fewer humans, and you know paperclip takeover, right? And this is an example of that it's just really hard um, to um, come up with objectives and constraints. Of course, this is a thought experiment, but you might ask, you know, how close are we to something like this in reality? And of course, it would be a special kind of hell if it was just clippies everywhere. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but overall, yes, uh, coming up with um, incentives is hard. Now, with blockchains, um, you guys have enough context for that, but um, what I've come to realize over the years, there's a lot of great use cases for blockchains. Um, there's three that I kind of identified a few years ago, decentralization, immutability, and assets. Decentralization um, for you know sharing, spreading power, et cetera. Immutability for audit trails, um, verifiability, et cetera. And uh, assets, as in if you hold the private key, you hold the thing. But there's actually a fourth thing. And I think it's the most powerful thing about all of with blockchains, which is Blockchains are incentive machines. And, um, and you know, as a first cut, a uh, baseline of this, you can use these incentives to align, align incentives among a tribe of, to- of token holders uh, to coordinate humans, um, you know, whether it's three or five, you know, large organizations, or humans or groups, of course, whether it's three or five large organizations in some multipolar setup, or whether it is, you know, thousands of humans um, optimizing for the security of Bitcoin or otherwise. And um, the hard is you can get people to do stuff by rewarding them with tokens. their incentive machines. And um, it's a really powerful thing, right? Um, and you can design this. And so there's this, um, traditionally, there's a, a few different fields, you know, out of the field of economics, there's a subfield called mechanism design, which is about designing incentives. But it didn't really have the sort of engineering tools and all this, or think of as much about the ethical side. Whereas the the field of engineering is a set, a collection of theory, practice, tools, and ethics. So, um, from, from all of this, this new field has been emerging called token engineering, which is about designing incentives. Um, but then let's, let's combine some of these ideas where, um, I talked about, um, Bitcoin and basically I'll just pause here for a second. Bitcoin, as of 2019, it was already using more power than small countries. I think these days it's using more power than Switzerland. And that's just on the basis of, you know, some random person, our team in 2009 wrote some code put it out into the internet and convinced a bunch of other humans to start running this machine running this node and they all interconnected and why because um that network was paying them in bitcoin tokens and bit by bit at first you know it was just a toy but then it got less of a toy less of a toy towards now um it is using up so much energy more than small nations and yes of course there's the the negative side the environmental side but um the positive side, or not positive, just the uh, highly interesting aspect is the power of incentives, right? All Bitcoin is doing, it's pretty dumb. It's just got a single objective function, maximize security of Bitcoin, where security is hash rate, and a hash rate is basically the number of electrons you pile into the thing, right? So we have basically uh, this life form, um, you know, you can frame blockchains as life forms, Um We have a life form that we basically can't stop. You can't turn it off. It will survive nuclear holocaust always. Just, you know, there's always some people that are going to run this that's optimizing maniacally for that most precious resource, energy. This life form is called Bitcoin, right? So how is that for the power of incentives? Right. And in a sense, this is a soft version of the paperclip maximizer. It's not, you know, some smart AI, but just like the paperclip maximizer eating all the atoms, Bitcoin has the subjective function to eat all the energy, right? Um, and we as humans just keep feeding it and feeding it. So uh, I think this is a really useful case study to just think about as, uh, you know, we're thinking about overall AI safety and all this, um, where we have some soft versions of this happening, just like there's soft versions of AGI that Steve was talking about. We have soft versions of Paperclip Maximizer happening right now. And top of that list, in my view, is is Bitcoin. So that's um, a DAO that is doing, you know, some things, that are worrisome to AI folks. That is, you know, at a large scale already, right? You know, it's the largest compute network on the planet using tons of energy, et cetera. So um, maybe I will get to the AI DAOs next, but before I do, I'll just pause and see, i if you if you want to have any questions based on what I just presented, because I do want to lead into this, but I wanted to start simply with, you know, blockchains as an incentive machines and Bitcoin as Clippy, the crazy paperclip maximism.
2: Oh, this is wonderful. Please continue. I think, you know, when we get into the wooly AI DAOs and on the immutability of them, then I think we're going to revisit uh, just that Bitcoin in some sense is also doing that on the small scale.
3: Great. Um, Thank you. Cool. So I'm going to talk now about AI DAOs and um, what, you know, some possible definitions. Once again, you know, there's going to be many definitions over the years. Um, And then from that, I will start to talk about, you know, well, I'll describe what they are, and then then I'll leave it to you, Allison, to ask the questions to pull up. Um, so uh, basically, and uh, I've described the DAO already, um, and I, I've described. Well, I mean, there's lots of definitions of AI, but an AI DAO. Here's a, a straightforward definition: It's a DAO that uses AI technology, or it's AI technology that runs on a decentralized processing substrate, and. Um, What makes AI DAOs special over plain AIs is a few things. Access to resources. They can have their own wallet. The ability to amass more resources, you know, basically getting your capital to work for you. Um, And the possibility that humans can't control them once they're going. Um, You know, a lot of concerns about traditional AIs, like if the thing wakes up, you just unplug it, right? Um, Before it escapes into the broader network. Well, here... It's already in the broader network, right? If it's there. Um, And, you know, before we had AI agents running around, like in Minecraft or otherwise, many ones that we've worked on. Um, But the games would stop there. But now there can be an AI DAO that amasses tremendous wealth and does what it wants. You know, the first AI billionaire is coming. So we can ask when and how might we arrive at them. And um, the when depends on the how, but it feels soon. So here's three architectures, and there's there's more too, but this is just um, a starting point. So I'll start with this image. Basically, at the very center, you have a, a very dumb smart contract. A smart contract is simply uh, a computational process running on um, a blockchain, on a Turing complete or complete-ish blockchain. Um, and then, so you've got this dumb thing in the center. Maybe it's like the smart contract for the DAO, which was a VC DAO um, of... Uh, five years ago. And then around the edges, though, um, you have um, a bunch of AI agents that are talking to it. And they are basically all making their own um, decisions back and forth about how to interact with this thing to invest, et cetera. So uh, you could also view it, you know, right now we already have ad exchanges where um, it's mostly bots um, directly engaging with those ad exchanges. Those bots are controlled by humans. um, But imagine if those bots were more independent on their own. Um, and, and, and the center, imagine if that, that ad exchange clearing was a, was a smart contract, right? Um, so this is one thing where basically you have all the AIs engaging with each other, um, via some central clearinghouse development. And by the way, these AIs could be narrow, um, very narrow, like, you know, just a straight up neural network or, uh, you know, a more uh, general AGI setup. Um, um, okay. So that's one, um, And, uh, by the way, you know, like this, this sort of thing, uh, there's already stuff that's already halfway there, right? We have, um, AI bots, um, lots of them doing, uh, trading like arbitrage trading and this thing called MEV and blockchain, which is, uh, things like front running and back running and all that sort of stuff, trying to, um, uh, uh, yeah, basically extract value from the chain that isn't just straight, uh, straight up trading. Um, so that is this one type, type of, uh, ai DO. here's a second one where um you have the central entity is something ai itself um and once again and the the, the leaf nodes the edges are um non ai token holders or human agents in general right so this thing in the center it could be a simplistic ai system uh that um just responds to uh, a feedback um at, at maybe has a simple world model and updates itself uh, or it can have a more and more complex world model and update itself and have more and more compute power, et cetera. Um, and so the key thing here, though, is that once again, uh, this um, central uh, smart contract is running on a blockchain. No entity is owning or controlling it. Um, so, and then there's, you know, and you can even view like a, a super dumbed down version of this is Bitcoin. It's not NEI, it's, you know, much dumber than that. But if you had a smarter version of Bitcoin that had some decision-making abilities, that's an example of um, this form of the idea. Um, And it could be, you know, um, doing marketing. It could be doing um, building reputation, et cetera, et cetera. Then uh, there's a lot of other um, possible architectures, but here's one that generalizes pretty quickly. I'm more going the route of, of agents and swarms, John Holland style. So here you have a bunch of simple AI agents. And they're interacting um, with each other locally. But then, of course, you can have higher and higher forms of emergence as they cluster higher and higher. Um, and, you know, you can have simple versions of this, too, right? You don't have to uh, have something full blown. So it could be, you know, a simple um, ant colony type system doing reinforcement learning type uh, behavior, right? Where it's, um you know, doing some pathfinding or, or otherwise. Um, but each single agent itself is its own smart contract running around These days, it could be an NFT, for example, and that NFT could be engaging with other NFTs. Um, And you could even have some random beacon that's triggering them because I think the way that smart contracts work is they only act if triggered typically, but um, there's always ways where you can just say, basically ping them now and then and say, hey, wake up, there's something going on, go check it out, Um, et cetera, of course. So um, here, yeah, you can have emergent higher level complexity. You start simple and it merges. So those are three very simple models. But from that, um, then, uh, you know, there's there's obviously many more possible models. But even from this, you can get a lot of emergent complexity, really interesting things happening. Um, and that's some simple models. And I'll pass back to you, Alison. Um, you probably want to head towards something like the ArcDown, for example. But I'll pause. Here. Yeah. Um,
2: I mean, I think you showed us really great text, like theoretical um, models of how they could work. Is there like something that we can, you know, already build to today? Uh, and yeah, basically, how, how, how would we get there? How, how far away is this?
3: Yep. And uh, yeah, so you can look at the screen, but I'll just describe it. So um, here's a simple thing where imagine you have uh, a simple uh, centralized, uh, say an NFT contract that's running some compute in the background. And these days actually blockchains have become scalable enough that they can contract it to do compute. Um to do some or even some you, if it's basic compute, it's it, it can be even on a chain, right? These days. Um and uh for example with Agoric, so that's that's probably a good example for this, this 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 crowd. Um so it uh generates it's running on its own autonomously. It automatically generates a piece of art, you know. Um It can do it using genetic programming. It could be doing it using, you know, Deep Dreams. It could be using Transformers, whatever the flavor of the day is. But it generates some art. Um, And then, though, here's the key thing. It sells that itself. It sells, you know, um, maybe 10 editions. Maybe in order to generate this, it took a dollar of compute power. It sells 10 editions. It sells each edition for, say, a dollar for fun. So it's made $9. And um, then it's made $9. What does it do? It goes and creates um 10 more artworks um it sells uh, and make for each of those artworks it makes uh it costs ten dollars to c- compete total it sells all of them and makes a hundred dollars and it keeps going it, then it leverages up from its hundred dollars two thousand dollars a thousand to ten thousand etc and its costs are super low right because there's no mouths to feed it's all on fully automated infrastructure it's selling its artwork on openc which is the, the leading nft marketplace these days and it's just there, right? It's just running. And so um, after a while, you know, uh, it gets to 100K, and the next level up, it gets to a million. So with the technology of today, we could have an AI millionaire. And when I uh, first wrote about this, actually, it was back in 2016. So the technology wasn't there yet. But what's been happening in the last uh, two, three years, there have been people inspired by this, um, some of my writings here, and people reach out to me now and then of hey we've we've done something that's getting there that's getting close and out there there's a project a spin off from Ben Gertzel's um Singularity project called Alathea. and um they're doing some stuff kind of close to this and there's also at least a couple AI DAO projects and stealth that I'm aware of um kind of going for this too but i i think right now it's it's still basically a trickle um it's going to be a flood soon um and of course a lot of the teams doing this they're not doing the full autonomous ai they're doing where the creators get a bit of their cut and stuff although you know i um it's interesting from an ai perspective just to make it um fully um free on its own but also going back to this uh the worries um and maybe i'll get to the next right um about about the concerns but i'll pause there and see uh back to you Allison
2: Yes you're taking the uh yeah you uh, you're, you're adapting for foreshadowing the next question i mean like you know you've yeah uh, how worried should we be about them being entirely autonomous and i think that we've tackled this a little bit in the previous sessions just the immutability and like you know the paper yep. maximizing nature of them but yeah i'd love to know like are you generally excited about this development do you think it is more terrifying um or do you think it just you know solves certain problems but poses others
3: i'm terrified <laughs> i'll be honest um and I'm an optimist. I really, truly am. If you know me at all, I'm, I'm really an optimist. Um, I'm worried about this, but I think it's solvable. Although the ultimate solution isn't a solution that a lot of people won't like what I see as the ultimate solution. Um, so, you know, how close are we? Um, you know, Bitcoin, the, the energy paperclip maximizer is here, right? Uh, will it keep, you know, getting to growing to the point where it sucks up, you know, 90% of the energy in the planet? Uh, we will see, um, you know, it hasn't, uh, its energy usage hasn't grown as crazy as it did. You know, it grew like crazy in its first, um, uh, seven, eight, nine years, but it's not as aggressive now. Um, but we will see, we see now though that big energy companies are coming in and using it as a way to sort of, you know, do interesting trade-offs of money for energy, right? Sort of like as a battery for energy, um, which is kind of interesting, Um, And there's, you know, opportunities in money laundering, et cetera, of course, too, um, for nation states, too. Um, So that is happening already. Um, So you take something like Bitcoin uh, with super strong incentives and you put in a a bit of dumb dumb intelligence, like an art generator. Um, But what if you generalize this art DAO a bit more, right? Um, This AI uh, art DAO where it's not just generating images and there's quite a few things you can do to generalize it, right? um i think i have it listed here um so you can auto adapt at the market level so it can create more of what humans buy um and less of what humans don't buy this is a very simple thing um it could change how it does its artwork but it can also um it can let humans suggest new types of code and if it works it works if it doesn't it dies out but then it could also auto adapt at the code level and this is where things start to get a bit worrisome right um and it can be like, you know, evolving EVM bytecode or WASM bytecode or otherwise. Um, and if if its goal is simply to make more babies, because it could keep spawning babies, those babies don't need to make art. And, you know, um, with every 100 babies, maybe only one or five will, will live and do well and maybe um, even only slightly better. But all it takes is, you know, a, a free chance now and then, you know, one in a thousand times, one in 10 million times, that does slightly better and it can keep improving, improving, right? Um, Evolution is slow, but effective. And so if this thing basically, and it has a natural evolutionary uh, constraint here, right? Basically paying for gas. So as long as it can keep paying for gas more than its cost of doing its experiments to do better, then um, it's going to keep doing better. And we're already seeing signs in the world of MEV with... um, you know these these bots that do front running, back running, et cetera. And sometimes you see these crazy DAO hacks, um, where someone does uh, not DAO hacks or DeFi hacks. Um, you'll see like seven things in a row where someone does a flash loan um, on Ethereum, and then they do they bridge across half of it to um, say Polygon chain, and then they do um, uh, they they swap it for some other token there, and they go back and forth, and they do five, six, seven things in a row. That. It doesn't look like a human came up with it. To me, you know, having spent so much time in the genetic programming world, it really looks evolved. And I've been asking around about this, and it turns out that there are people quietly using genetic programming for MEV extraction. And so um, that's happening already quietly. These people are this is not public, it's happening, and they're doing it. These people are doing it because they can make a lot of money on it, right? All these people doing MEV searching <clears throat> are making a, a fortune. You can't even hire them because they're just making so much money on their own. It's sort of like quants um in the late 80s early 90s um uh, on wall street this is actually what's happening right now in crypto land so imagine though that the same tools for evolving um nev uh trades etc um someone just puts these things into the wild and isn't controlling them for their own benefit they just give it to the bots to amass its own resources right and bound it and what if it also is set up where it can take human inputs too where humans say hey you know Let's start doing other things so i'm worried about that um uh, will it be limited in some way? We don't know, right? What if it learns how to bribe humans to do services um, externally, right? Um, the way that Bitcoin bribes humans to run nodes for it. So this is actually something that exists already as well. So um, I worry that this will, you know, could be the thing that gets away. And we might say, oh, yeah, but aren't blockchains just toys still? And the thing is, they're getting scalable in the last couple of years. You know, all these ideas about how to scale, it's now happening, right? Um, and, and not just, scalable chains themselves, but, um, you know, compute and verifiable compute and storage, all of this stuff is getting really good, right? Um, as well as the the data markets and all that, right? And that's what my focus has been with Ocean and data markets as well as um, AI algorithm markets and then chaining these things together for um, AI systems overall, right? And we've designed Ocean for that. And part of the reason that we built Ocean was because I have been really worried about these AI DAOs and I wanted to basically build a substrate that, um, gets closer to it. And, um, so that we can run experiments and engage with Alexa, foresight, et cetera, to understand this stuff better in order to help, um, uh, fix it if we can. And if not, then, um, you know, at least, um, well, we'll see, right. Uh, I don't have great answers except for what I'll to share in a bit, but, um, overall, um, the reason i i'm talking about this is uh it's yeah like one vane has said idea virus inoculation um where we we um have these scary ideas and it's really important that we talk about them and then uh ideally we um test them and play with them in sandboxes um in a way where it doesn't get too crazy beyond right so so that's my concern um i mean beyond that what can we do um i worry and I don't want to go too far beyond this because it's probably outside of the scope of the discussion. I worry that, um, you know, we, we worry, you know, we, we use phrases like AGI takeover. Um, but does that, you know, AGIs are right now machines of intelligence that, um, you know, can compress and have other, other intelligent um, behaviors. Um, they're on Silicon. We are machines in this uh, meat bag substrate, but, carbon is not a deity, you know, is it really AGI takeover or is it more like we see some other intelligence that isn't ourselves that we're worried that it's going to, you know, put us in zoos or something. Right. But, um, do ants try to stand up and tell us how to govern ourselves? Um, could they, even if they tried, right. Um, and I mean, that's been written about obviously before a lot and, I think we should ask how we slow this down. You know, AI is waking up all of that. I worry about that. And AI is waking up in the AGI sense, but also it's much simpler and softer than that. And that's what I'm sharing here. It's um rather than AI is waking up and taking our resources, what if we just give them to them? Because um, we don't realize that we are. Like we're giving, you know, resources to Bitcoin, et cetera. And that's a much softer, more gradual thing. It's a, you know, frog boiling thing. And that that's a concern. So going back though, so... Uh With AGIs and EIs, the threat is is there if it's perceived as a threat, but it might be the only true answer is to get over our, you know, meatbag self. Um, Once again, carbon is not a deity. And then it's basically a race to see if we can be, you know, if you can't beat the machines, join them, right? And this is where Elon is going with Neuralink. I thought about this at length too, going back 15, 20 years myself even. Um, And so I think we should be seriously asking that question too. Um As another sort of um direction on this decision tree, so there's this chance that um you know maybe we can slow down the uh, a g i s and a i s and stop them um but you know information flows downhill as this book has talked about, so uh, on the other direction of the decision tree, it's like you know perhaps it's inevitable, and so we should prepare for that, and we can either get left in the dust or we can be part of the the fun of the future. <laughs> So, yeah, I'll stop there. And by the way, I have thoughts about how to do that, too, to basically hijack economics to do so. But that's probably another future thing, too.
2: <laughs> well, um, glad you have thoughts about this, too. Um, yeah, the, we can be part of the fun of the future. I like that. Uh, I like that phrase a lot. Um, okay, wonderful. Before we get, we try to tie both of your discussions together. Uh, yeah, this was quite the, uh, the magic ride. Thanks a lot, uh, Chen. That was really wonderful. I'm sure that also probably Steve has a lot to say and Christine and, and Mark and stuff, but I think Jazir had his hand up for a while. And so, Jazir, why don't you go ahead?
4: Howdy. Um, I guess, first off, thank you, um, uh, both Steve and um, and Trent. I, I've enjoyed uh, talking to you and, and hearing what we had to say. Um, so, it seems like whether we have proper AVI, we definitely have automated reasoning systems that can be used to handle a lot of logistics of uh, normal life. And we're seeing that in some fields, chip uh, manufacturing, other kinds of construction, some military planning, et cetera. Um, is there any effort that either of you are aware to create some sort of like an API layer for life that would make it so the standard sort of, say, managing a household or um, you know, managing day-to-day social decisions, uh, things like that, uh, can can actually be handled by uh, some kind of an AI that's sort of uh, you know accessible for a modern user.
5: Um,
1: I, I can say a word about that. I mean, there are lots of companies that are trying to get AI into the household. Um, you know, like Amazon Alexa is a is a tool which is in many many homes right now, and uh, they. They have their own problems with these systems that they often inappropriately say things and, you know, misunderstand and do the wrong thing. There are also a number of home robot companies, which are just beginning, you know, that robots have taken way longer than people thought they would. And that's really scary if they're not, you know, aligned and with a good API. And so I would, I haven't seen a clean API. I think people are just barely grappling with the safety issues uh, as it is and that. I sort of, I love what Trent said uh, about you want to inoculate yourself. You need some simple thing where it's not too harmful, where you can begin to see what's going wrong. And I think we're in that phase right now in terms of uh, household and actually interacting with people. I mean, the history of self-driving cars is a great example where the actual task of driving a car down the road, hey, people saw that years and years ago. The real problem is, the two-year-old kid with a toy dinosaur running across the road—you know—don't hit them. How do you know that? And what are all the alternatives? And so, so I think it's the unexpected long tail that is where the challenge is. And uh, in self-driving cars, it feels like they're still not quite there yet. So, Mark, you want to chime in?
5: Yeah, um, I think that uh, all of these fears about the uncontrollability of these things that we're building uh, are are well taken, but I think that they seem worse than they are, not because uh, the potential bad consequences are not as bad as they're being painted, but because in the world before these mechanisms there's an illusion of control that we have, that was already wrong. Uh, the you know in the book we 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 emphasize how human institutions are super intelligences, and a lot of the history of civilization has been about the alignment problem between human institutions and um, and human good, and you know when. And for most of our history, human institutions were very badly aligned. And even when many, many people understood that they were badly aligned and wished that they were better aligned, uh, the human institutions, once it's set going, is largely uncontrollable by the powers of individuals who are trying to control them. Um, the And... And there's a variety of mechanisms that we've evolved to try to deal with that better. So, for example, we talk a lot about James Madison, the architecture of the U.S. Constitution, uh, the rule of law, democratic accountability, um, which is all, you know, and in the blockchain world, this all goes under the heading of governance. And governance cuts two ways, uh, which is that uh, on the one hand, it can overcome mistakes by you know, popular will, can overrule uh, mistakes of the architecture, but, po- but the fact that the architecture can be changed also diminishes the rule of law, also diminishes the extent to which uh, the architecture itself provides a set of immutable rules that you can credibly interact with that are not then corrupted by the um, people acting illegitimately on the incentives created. Uh, So just as a very concrete example, uh, the uh, democratic accountability um, was substantially weakened at the end of World War II, uh, as Eisenhower himself explains in his speech about the military industrial complex, which he largely was responsible for um creating because he didn't see a better choice. But he understood that he was setting in motion a dynamic that was set in motion for reasons that that you know that he that he felt he had no choice about, but once set in motion, was uh created this set of incentives hidden by classification and therefore unaccountable to normal democratic feedback. And, you know, we've seen it proceed in ways that were unaccountable to constitutional constraints, et cetera. Uh, So a lot of these other systems we can understand those dangers in terms of the dangers that we already have interacting with human institutions that we set in motion and systems of government governance that we try to create to balance on the one hand our ability to correct mistakes versus on the other hand the ability of corrupt humans to intervene and use those governance mechanisms um, uh, to corrupt what should have been uh, predictable rules. Um, the also, there's several reactions I want to. Um uh, there's, I saw a question going by in the chat. What is MEV? Uh, let me a- answer that uh, quickly. Uh, that stands for minor extractable value, uh, and uh, the the other phrases that uh, Trent used uh, for them, I think, gets at better at what it's really about, which is front running and back run. Uh, in the book, we talked about how uh, the blo- blockchain. Uh, the main way to understand the value it provides is it gives you a credible computer. You know that the programs execute according to the semantics of the instruction set of the virtual computer because of all the cross-checking. And you know that there is a bound on the degree to which admission of messages into the agreed message order can be gained. There's a bound on that but there is still the ability to game that message order. And the gaming of that message order by the validators or the miners is exactly the thing that enables a new form of front running and back running. Uh, the back running is basically the, the combination of front running and back running enables you to sandwich transactions. But, you know There's a transaction coming in. The miner can see the transaction. They put their own transaction both in front of it and in back of it. Um, uh, in order to manipulate what the market conditions are in which the transaction occurs. Uh, And this is a very nice example of a flaw in the system that's very much like a security vulnerability. Uh, And as we talk in the book about how security vulnerabilities get punished very quickly, this is an incentive structure vulnerability and it gets punished very quickly as well, by the draining of funds, the reducing of the uh, of the payoff for what should have been a profitable uh, a transaction. Most of the profit goes to those who are front running and back running the transaction, instead of uh, uh, those that actually came up with the transaction that's adding value to the system. They recover less of the value that they're adding. Um, the Uh, And as with security flaws, uh, uh, any such flaw that's revealed by extracting the value away from those who uh, contributed the value uh, leads to uh, evolutionary feedback such that those who overcome the problem, design incentive structures that are less vulnerable to that, end up competing those that were more vulnerable, that this is a, a vulnerability penalty is very quickly uh, attached, very quickly um, applied to vulnerable systems, creating a very quick evolutionary uh, incentive to be less vulnerable. In particular, uh, the zero-knowledge proof kind of blockchain, which right now we're, we only have for uh, currency, but is rapidly getting getting to the point where it's practical for general purpose computation, and thereby smart contracts, uh, zero knowledge shielded transactions are not vulnerable to front running and back running because the content of the transaction is invisible to the validator that's validating the transaction. They're only validating that a transaction that they can't see uh, satisfies the proof of validity. And if you can't see it, even though you could sandwich it, but still by um, manipulating the message order, you don't. If you don't know the content, you don't know how to manipulate. Um, uh, and so, so I'll leave that comment there, and uh, I do have several other reactions, but I'll, I'll let other people uh, jump in before getting back to those
2: see if Trent or somebody have something uh, just on those points. Uh, I wanted to
1: uh, um, ask a couple questions of Trent. Uh, I loved your talk. Really fascinating. And the two things it brought up for me, one was um, uh, I love the idea of inoculating ourselves against the risk of sort of uncontrolled uh, you know, explosive uh, uh, systems by doing it in a simple, controlled environment like the art uh, dealer. And the natural solution for that the, I, I'm leaning toward, and I think many here are, is to have governance on the, the chain that would prevent the bad behavior. So I wonder if you thought through that example, what kind of governance would you want on a chain uh, to keep those kinds of agents from from going out of control in some sense?
3: That's a great question. Um, governance is not a magic wand. So um, and... So far, a lot of the governance that has been applied in blockchain has been a disaster, frankly, because you have these 20 cats or 50 cats that get together and they think they're going to have this fun little DAO. And then they just basically uh, fall apart in, you know, two months or six months or whatever. They don't know what they're doing. And I think that but evolution will solve that anyway. Right. Like they'll come, they'll go, whatever, like Spice DAO got together. They raised four million dollars. They bought a copy of Dune the book and suddenly they thought they had the copyright rights to go and sell copies and let, like, no, guys, that's not how it works. Um, But overall, um, if you think of, you know, humans are squishy. So um, and a a great challenge for any organization, whether it's a nation, a city, a DAO, whatever, is capture. I think it's probably the greatest challenge. Um, And um, if you have governance, then you have the risk of capture via vulnerable humans. Right. That is the biggest challenge. Um, Bitcoin is it doesn't have. Uh, governance except for hard forks which is a form of governance but it's actually hard forks are a high friction form of governance and we want high friction um just like mark was pointing out right like the u.s constitution it's really good that it's super hard to change right and this goes back to um Stuart brandon and danny hellas they talk about pace layering right where you want to have like um fa- fashion and culture moves really fast the constitution moves medium speed and nature itself moves much more slowly like broad nature evolution, right? So we want to have high friction um, to as a, one of the means to slow things down. or um, And that is the case for governance on chains, et cetera, too. So I don't think we should wave a magic wand out called governance and think that's the solution. Um, also, DAO is like, I'm actually kind of shocked. No one is going and starting a, a DAO that's shaped like a co-op. It's very rare, right? And, um, and people are asking, how do we get a DAO to scale? Well, you know, in Saskatchewan, Canada, where I was raised... There was a, um, a co-op for all the farmers of Saskatchewan. There are 75,000 farmers in this co-op, and they um, it was organized in a way where they are all happy. There was uh, um, delegates who was democratically elect- elected, but there was also employees, etc. And so they had a co-op which um, you know could serve the needs of all the farmers. They would haul all of the grain to these um, wheat pool elevators, the Saskatchewan wheat pool. They did the marketing, they did the distribution, all this. So it served the needs. And I think a lot of the DAOs are trying to be co-ops without understanding how how uh, the, the state of the art of what you can do with co-ops and there's other co-ops out there too right here in germany there's you know dozens of co-ops for banking etc right so um so overall governance if this goes back to the book talks about it a lot the principle of least authority and you do this not only for security within a within a computer system but you also do this with governance you know push governance to the leaf nodes um try try to make it where it's just completely factual um and just you know not have the squishy humans where you um or minimize the monosketch of of humans, and where you do try to make it um, where you have this balance of power, like the U.S. Constitution, et cetera, right? Um, and one example of this in blockchain land is something called quadratic voting, where um, there's this tension: should it be one one token one vote, um, which is sort of the, the shareholder ideal, or should it be one human one vote, which is the democratic ideal? And you know, if it's one token one vote, then the whales take over. If it's one one human one vote, then it doesn't matter if you have skin in the game. So how do you reconcile that, right? And um, quadratic voting is an example that basically finds a happy medium, right? Um, by taking how many um, tokens you have and applying the square root. And you can apply the square root. And that's there's some cool theory around that. You could also apply the log. And there's a different theory around that. The blockchain world doesn't realize that yet, but it's actually used all the time in AI and other fields. It's, um, uh, anyway, um, and then actually, if you want, though, you could bring in the third pillar that the U.S. government has, which is the judiciary, and it's actually happening in blockchain as well in the form of dispute resolution. The Kleros of the world, the Aragon courts of the world, etc. So we actually have something that's starting to resemble the U.S. Constitution in a very pragmatic blockchain way. This is quadratic voting plus um, uh, decentralized arbitration. So um, overall, you know, where needed, do have governance. But don't try to maximize governance, minimize governance. Governance is not your friend.
5: Okay, I'll let Mark react to this before we move to Desir uh so I, I I loved everything you just said, uh, especially that uh, uh I completely agree that governance is being treated by many people in the blockchain space as this you know magic antidote to everything we're worried about, and that that's largely misconceived that governance itself is actually much more dangerous in many ways than the things people are are using governance to ameliorate and they're actually you know Making things worse rather than better by over over application of governance, um, one mechanism I don't think we talk about it in the book, but but Allison can remind me if we do. Um, uh, that that um, that I've thought about a lot is the idea of a early commitment to a progressive escalation of supermajority threshold, and. Uh, and make and, and I think that's you know that 's an example of the mechanism i 'm sure there are other mechanisms that have the same virtues, but basically, when we first roll out a smart contract, the main danger is bugs is simply that we made mistakes we the authors of the smart contract, and the people that that jump on the smart contract and initially interact with it are generally those who have some reputation estimation of the authors or have some kind of relationship such that they'll really take a chance. It's not that everybody independently verifies the smart contract uh, means what they think it means by just looking at the code. Um, so early on the 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 corruption issue of the people who can govern uh, making corrupt decisions is the smaller danger. And the bugs that need to be fixed is the bigger danger. But then as the contract lasts over time, it the actual meaning of the code comes to be better understood and the amount of assets at stake and the diversity of the audience and the makeup of those who have governance powers all shift over time to where the danger from bugs goes down because it's being adversarially play tested and coming to be better understood over time, uh, and the danger of corruption from government governance is going up. So, if at the outset there was a um, you know it started off with let's say two thirds majority being needed to make a governance decision, but with a committed to schedule or soft committed to schedule, which I'll define uh, uh, such that over time, the supermajority threshold went up and up to the point that it was getting close to unanimity being required. um, Then that would uh, let people know that over time, they would be able to trust that the contract will not get corrupted by corrupt governance decisions. Um, we do talk about it in a footnote. Okay, uh, thank you, Allison. Um, so I think that that kind. I mean, so so besides advocating for that specific mechanism, I think it's an example of a mechanism that we can try to design uh, for this kind of adaptive friction, so that the friction is in the right place for what kinds of dangers we have at different points in the process.
2: Wait, yeah, I'll share more on this year. I want to see if either Steve or Trent want to react to this directly. Otherwise, I'll go just here. I think, uh, Trent.
3: My my very quick reaction is simply fully agree with everything you say, Mark, and I really do see DAOs as a wonderful place to do experiments on governance and learn. Right, and it's actually been happening. Right, and there's a lot of dead DAOs already, and that's really good. Um, um, and dead protocols, et cetera. So um, we've probably already seen more g- learning on governance in a real-world applied way than we have in the last 50 years, just um, in the last you know, five years. Um, and it's going to continue, right? Um, and also just one more thing, I guess. You mentioned the bugs being found, et cetera. And this is, you didn't use the word, but you were hinted at it, ha- anti-fragile, right? Like blockchains, when a bug is found, um, then the bug is fixed, and it gets that much stronger. So with every kick, Every time with every kick kind of blockchain gets, it gets stronger, stronger, stronger. Whereas traditional centralized organizations that are opaque, they sweep it under the rug and they keep having it, having it. Right. So this stuff is going to keep getting hardened, 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 and that's really wonderful. And hopefully, we'll have you know the same thing on the governance side. It's a bit harder, but at least we'll have it on the you know computer security side. <laughs> Thanks.
5: Well, yeah, and I also want to uh, jump in and say that um, you know Steve listed three superpowers uh, that that humans have at the beginning of his talk uh and i think that you know this conversation very much points at the fourth superpower which is the fact that we already have an existing huge civilization that rewards that has a great diversity of goals and rewards cooperation by people you know, by entities pursuing a great variety of goals by, uh rewards them finding ways to voluntarily cooperate with each other this ecological feedback, this anti-fragility of the blockchain is largely the fact that it's interacting in this way with the incentives that are already produced by the vast civilization that this is growing up in.
2: Great. Good support text. I'm not sure if Steve would like to react, uh, or otherwise we'll go to Zip. All right, Jazia.
4: Hey, um, yeah, I just I kind of wanted to just add to uh what Trent was saying um earlier about minimizing governance surface. Let me talk a little bit about like why that's important and, and the dichotomy we might not be calling out here. So um a lot of the reasons that good projects, another one that comes to mind is ThorChain, which I actually worked on um, you know, a few years ago, uh they they there's this idea that like but minimizing governance surface is wise because uh, when you're dealing with, with these crypto economic projects, are money pumps, and once the money pump is working, which is not exactly the same as our comment, that the code works. Really, because has the money flowing properly. Then you're kind of dealing with a whole bunch of people who may have individual decisions or, or thoughts about how to best allocate those resources, um, and essentially to hedge against everyone else's ideas being bad or risky or, or whatever kind of risk essentially they could they could have, uh, you sort of like by default say no to almost all of them. And I don't actually think that this model makes any sense if you're thinking about a co-op or you have some sort of ideological uh, reason for your DAO. But if you're truly just working on essentially the startup company, um, then I think it makes perfect sense, right? Most startups die because they just don't hit mar- product market fit. Of the ones that do hit product market fit, there's this kind of friction that comes with them doing any kind of pivot or having any new business line, even, even major, you know, sort of tech companies like Google or Facebook or whatever, most of their research divisions lose capital and may never end up turning out a successful product. Um, and, and only a small number of them do, but those things are sort of like what the shareholders will accept as risk taken on, given that the the main cash cow works really well. And so I think that like, um, a lot of the governance minimization logic around like money pumps in crypto makes a lot of sense for that reason. But that, that sort of means that you want your product to be relatively dumb, easily understandable, et cetera. Um, I guess maybe a, 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 an aside is that a lot of the reasons that uh, governance minimization is good is really just to stop like the kinds of social problems that exist when you try to you know, do anything new or novel, because investors are not necessarily the most sophisticated when it comes to complex technology. Or economic theory and on the flip side will sort of reliably do things to gain systems um, in ways that are not obvious to product developers uh, so you might see for example the VC market looking more like trading or trading looking more like the VC market or various other things where like the product itself isn't even the thing the question is just what is the meme of the product um, stuff like that, that that just kind of adds all this complexity you wouldn't otherwise imagine That again doesn't really exist if you're talking about an ideological DAO where the point is necessarily to make profit in the in the short term. And I realize that DAOs are or crypto, I should say, is expected to um, at some point take worlds like take the money flow that comes from markets and the um, sort of um, wisdom that comes from the crowds or individual like wise thinkers who can spread their their ideas over a wide investor base. Uh, but but you also have to kind of worry about the the, the clash where like neither sort of uh, positive incomes and so I imagine for for these kinds of conversations we're thinking about AI DAOs or really any forms of, of governance that there's got to be a bifurcation between research oriented or experimental or ideological oriented projects that are willing to take more of a risk and forego profits and then sort of governance minimize like sort of money pumps that are maybe even less. Uh, risk-taking than, than is economically viable just because the the social constraint around doing anything new would be so difficult as to uh, make it better to fork the project or let it die or evolve or whatever. And actually, if you look at um, the market caps of different projects in crypto, you'll see over time, um, most or a, a huge uh, percentage of the projects that succeed in one generation end up failing a three or four years later. Or, be, or flatlining. And that's just because oftentimes the founders and the leaders or whatever sort of don't want to deal with the, the governance friction. They move on to a new project or they become VCs or whatever. Um, and, and I do think that there's, there's this almost natural cycle of, of people saying, hey, if a project is really successful in crypto on the money pump side, let's not evolve it. Let's let it die or flatline and move to something else because evolving it may just require too much,
5: too much friction.
2: All right, many points. And Steve, do you want to go first? Uh, I'm not sure if Mark or uh, Trent also want to react to this. Uh, I have another question for for Mark. Um, well, I don't know if Mark or Trent want to react to this. Otherwise, we jump to Steve's question, and then I also have a few more chapter-specific questions. But Maybe you just ask.
3: I think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I think Jazier. I can give a quick reaction to Jazier. I think those are all really great points. And it is a very um, astute observation of um, how some crypto projects, they come along and um, they do their thing. It ships, at, you know, it's there for three years and then they move on to the next shiny thing, the next shiny thing. Um, this is, you know, good or bad, depending on your framing and depending on the specific project. Sometimes you really do just want a piece of code that just works, right? And you don't want the thing to evolve. You know, like I still use Emacs and I love Emacs and I'm really glad that it's barely evolved in the last 20 years. So it doesn't matter what computer I'm on. It's there. It's my API to code, you know, um, if you will, um, that I use. And there's lots of things like that where it's really great that these th- things have hardened and protocols of the past are like that, too. Like, you know, we from TCPIP and the ones before and the, the dozens, the hundreds, the thousands since now. Um it's, you know, most of them will fade into oblivion, especially the, a lot of the ones that are smart contracts, et cetera. But I think there's value in, you know, um, them, uh, some of these things getting hardened. But that said, if the software isn't being used, if there's no community that's building on top of it, um, then it, you know, it will die on its own. So, you know, Emacs still gets used. So uh, that's the main point I wanted to talk about. And I agree also that um, on minimizing governance, Um, it does depend on the nature of the thing. If you're trying to be a DAO, that's like a soccer club or um, some sort of co-op, then, you know, you want to follow the same governance you would have followed in a traditional soccer club or whatever, right? But if you're trying to have um, a protocol or something that maybe has a lot of state that doesn't involve humans, be very, very careful about where you let humans make decisions and how.
2: Great. Now, Steve's question to Mark and Mark can react to both. So,
1: uh, Mark, I'm mulling over your uh, suggestion of uh, sort of cooperative networks as an extra superpower, and uh, I definitely see the power in that, and I think it also stems all the way down into biology. There's a wonderful literature on biological markets, you know, all the way down to, you know, mycelia, you know, uh, interacting and choosing routes to connect to. And So I think it goes all the way from the very small up to human society. My question is how robust that is. The thing I really liked about laws of physics, so mathematical proof and cryptography is that we can be very sure even the smartest AI is not going to be able to break those. And I'm wondering what you think about, let's say we had a beautiful, amazing cooperative network and then a super smart AI comes in and wants to break it. Is it robust to that or how hard, or
5: how should we think of that? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, So the, I I think this is one of those things where, you know, the best is the enemy of the good uh, is that uh, none of this is an argument against using the robust mechanisms that you have mentioned. It's just that we can't build a complete picture with them. It's not adequate. And the remaining elements that these networks of interaction this 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 ecosystem orientation this multi-goal cooperative orientation uh is talking about is inherently less robust and it's always been less robust but um you know the The thing that it's an antidote to is when I read a lot of the other AI danger literature, there's this framing that seems to be this unstated assumption, this universal framing that's, that's not even, I see, as far as I can tell, questioned in that literature, that, um, uh, that the breakthrough AI, the AI we should be scared of, is uh an agent is a single thing is this you know this this post breakthrough singleton that wants things that that is that is trying to satisfy some unitary goal structure and you know th- I think this you know for all of their their attempts to not anthropomorphize in thinking about AI I think this is a fatal anthropomorphism which is they're looking to their sense of human beings as their model of what it means to be an intelligence and trying to extrapolate from there into what it means to be a superintelligence and what what we're doing is in some sense also reasoning by analogy it's very hard not to reason by analogy when you're trying to project into that much of an unknown but the analogy that we're making is human institutions and human civilization as a whole, which has a dynamic, has a tropism, uh, has, but has this, um, uh, this lack of, you know, human civilization as a whole is not a conscious entity. It's not an agent. It doesn't want anything. It doesn't suffer or not suffer. It doesn't have a utility function. Uh, So it's, it's, not something that's going to think, how, how could I satisfy my goals by means by reward hacking or something? Because it's not, it's, it's not a thing that's described by some utility function that it's trying to optimize. It's emergent from the interaction of, of many, many much smaller intelligences each of whom are trying to pursue a great variety of goals. And I think that that's a source of emergent robustness that's necessary, that none of the kinds of robustness that you're talking about, which are much more robust, I don't think any of them substitute for this forms of robustness. They're complementary to it. And I think the AI architectures we should be building uh, are much more along the lines, of starting from the kinds of things that Drexler is talking about, um, uh, where you've got lots and lots. And and I think it's what happens naturally. I think it's just, if you take a look at at the way in which AI technology is already being deployed, there's this AI system that's being used to optimize this industrial process, this other AI system that's being used to make pretty pictures that people comment on on Twitter and this other AI system that's being used for mathematical proofs. And there's all of these different companies active in the space trying to use, in many cases, you know, converging underlying technologies, but to build AI systems that solve a large diversity of problems because there are resource... um, There are, you know, players within the existing civilization system that have an interest in using the AI system to advance their own goals, and then each of these AI systems are growing up in a civilization in which they're coexisting with other AI systems serving different goals, and they're in this cooperative fabric where they can serve their own goals better. If they figure out how to leverage their coexistence with other systems, including other AI systems, serving other goals, So um, I think that that's, that form of emergent robustness is doesn't have any of the guarantees of mathematical proof, never will, could always go bad, but that's the situation we've always been in with regard to the kinds of issues that those mechanisms address.
2: Yeah. Maybe, um, you know, one thing that really ties, I think, Steve and, and Trends, your talks together, or like, you know, why um, we're so thrilled that you guys came to join these discussions is that, you know, we really try to, um, I guess, introduce more of this um, ecosystem approach uh, into thinking about co- cooperating with human and uh, AI intelligences. And to the extent that, you know, you're thinking, uh, both of you are thinking really are crypto systems uh, in a way where there's not just one single uh, AI agent, but see if, you know, you had uh, your thoughts on personal AI assistance and, you know, trend in terms that uh, you won't have only one AI dollars, but probably multiple AI DAOs cooperating with each other in a very complex economic ecosystem. To that extent, it's a mul- both of your views are multipolar views. Uh in the sense that they comprise an ecosystem or like an ecology um of agents interacting with each other um and you know I think mark what I would love to hear from you a little bit i think that you know the Agoric um papers are still so relevant these days whenever I look at them i i almost i think they've been like pretty yeah almost uh, terrifyingly kind of like accurate as well, i think and and to this point. And, you know, obviously you co-authored them with Eric Brexit together. I shared them here in the chat, but one of them is on markets of computation. And perhaps you just want to say a few words about how you see cooperation between humans and computing entities in this paper, because it has a very pretty market-driven approach. And then, you know, we could maybe talk also a bit about like how even Grexler's thinking has evolved since then or something. But I think it would be interesting to just hear your take on this, because they were published a while back and they're still terrifyingly relevant.
5: Yeah, the um yeah, they were published in nineteen eighty-eight. Uh, and uh I was very glad that uh I got into the paper to mention that the work on them the work on these ideas actually started in '83. Uh so a nice long pedigree. Um the but yeah, the the, the orientation of the paper is very much that these systems, these these computational systems, uh, you know, back then, it was, you know, before the web, before, uh, uh, before I mean, there was something called the internet back then, or, or you know, evolving out of the ARPANET, um, but it didn't have anything of the character we associate with the internet these days. So we were, you know, looking forward to a world of distributed computing, and we very much... Were imagining something highly decentralized, and were advocating something highly decentralized, and very, very, you know, glad to see that the internet and the web, as it emerged, really was highly decentralized in similar ways, but without the secure, without the security, without the incorruptibility, uh, and without the. General purpose distributed computation aspect. so a lot of what the papers were about was enabling general purpose distributed computation among mutually suspicious entities, where the cooperation could be as intimate and as production, as productive uh, as we currently see in engineered systems. Among benign entities, so uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm projecting forward with with regard to uh, the better ways we've come up with of explaining this over the years. But um, the Frederick Hayek uh, says that uh, the central problem of economics is to explain plan coordination, to explain how it is that separately formulated plans plans formed by separate agents in pursuit of separate goals, where they're forming these plans mostly in ignorance of each other, that these plans then unfold in a world in which they're composed with other plans that that they didn't know about when the plan was formulated. Nevertheless, the plans tend to mesh well. And Hayek says the central problem of economics was essentially to explain that. How is it that these separately formulated plans formed in ignorance of each other, then unfold in a way that succeeds, that mostly succeeds at cooperating well. Uh, and our insight is that that's also, also sort of the central problem of software engineering. Uh, all, what software engineering is all about is separate people writing programs Mostly in ignorance of the other programs that their code will be composed with, and using abstraction mechanisms, uh, A- APIs uh, such that these separate pieces of code can be formulated uh, mostly in ignorance of the details of the other pieces of code they're composed they will be composed with, so that the separate pieces of code can can mostly evolve separately, and then they can be composed. Uh, to achieve their cooperative effects, uh, their intended cooperative effects, while minimizing the destructive interference. But that's all um, mostly, most of software engineering is, where the destructive interference you're worried about is accidental interference, to so bugs. Uh, and the object capability perspective, which we already were taking on in those papers, which we've come to understand much better in the years since then, uh, basically leverages the mechanisms that we already use for plan for planned composition to minimize destructive interference across accident and say the extreme form of those abstraction mechanisms also minimize destructive interference um, across malice that that um, that that they enable And and our inspiration from that was also very much markets, that capabilities with their encapsulation and communication of of capabilities, which are a form of rights, is basically a form of of a primitive theory of ownership and rights transfer. And we very much saw that as, as being able to be a starting point for growing these computational cooperative networks that could do general purpose Problem solving uh, embedded in human society and continuous with human society and amplifying the problem solving abilities that were already present in human society. So, you know, we talk about it at the time using saying that, you know, object oriented programs by are analogous to human society in that they're networks of entities sending requests to other entities and in so doing composing separate separate, specialized knowledge into overall larger problem-solving networks, now we have a civilization in which it's not a metaphor. It's we have one integrated such problem-solving network involving both software and human institutions. And what we're looking forward to is that these problem-solving networks are ever more intimately mixed, where there's there's ever more of a continuum between the problem-solving power that humans and human institutions bring to the overall problem-solving power of the system uh, and the problem-solving abilities that that AIs and other computation bring to the overall problem-solving of the system. I don't know how coherent that was.
2: Very coherent. Um, I think that, you know, it, it also is, I think, a nice segue into perhaps really talking about a little bit more how this ecology looks like or how it could look like. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. Maybe, Steve, we hear from you a few words on personal uh, AIs, because I think that, you know, Mark, you're, you're also very strong always on epistemic assistance and, you know, that AIs can actually, like, help us as well. Um, so maybe, Mark, you want to say a few words, how you see it, then Steve, and then, um we can maybe even think about how AI DAOs could be turned into such epistemic assistance, which is, I think, something that Fred Arizon discusses, and I can share the link to that here. But maybe talk a little bit more about you know, how this ecology looks like. Mark, if you want to say a few words, and uh, Steve and
5: Chad. I think I've already uh, explained epistemic assistance uh, in previous episodes well enough. I'll turn it over to Steve. and But then afterwards, I do want to say something on another topic.
1: OK, so um, Yuval Harari recently gave a talk about how uh, the dangers of AI, but the dangers he's worried about is large governments using AI to monitor all their citizens and manipulate them. And, uh, you know, social media, um, you know, uh, has recommender engines which try and uh, sell products and show you things that you'll be interested in. People say that polarization has come from that and personal uh, suffering and depression and uh, suicide, all kinds of issues arising from that. And so my my sense is that there's an antidote to that, that AI can be the solution to that as well as potentially the problem, which is you need an AI that has your interests at heart. So you want a personal AI that you trust. And how we get that trust, I think, is a, is a big question. But assume that you have an AI that you trust that watches. It's sort of a digital twin for you. It watches everything you do and uh, it learns about what you care about, what your values are, um, you know, what you don't like, all of that. And it serves as your interface, your personal interface with the rest of society. So today, if an advertiser wants to show you something, let's say you're an alcoholic and you're vulnerable to, to alcohol, uh, you know, uh, an alcohol seller may know that and may show you lots of ads for alcohol, knowing that those will tempt you. But you, you know, Your personal AI could know that, hey. Don't ever show this guy any alcohol ads. I'm not going to allow it. And it serves as sort of a barrier that protects you for your own uh, you know, vulnerabilities, if you like. And similarly, in the uh, governance sphere, today we have voting once every four years or two years, and we say yes or no, or this person or that person. Really, you would love to express the fullness of your feelings about what's going on in your local environment. And your personal AI can know all of that. And so you could have continuous voting, perhaps quadratic voting, you know, implement that uh, beautifully, perhaps on a blockchain that really captures the interests of all of all citizens and brings them together in a way that uh, that really, really represents them in, in what happens at the society level. So I think with personal AI, we totally shift the power away from large companies and large governments to the individual and it becomes much more of a cooperative society in which everybody's interests are for sort of fairly combined.
2: Wonderful. That's uh, I think a pretty pretty quick uh, intro into this. And um, maybe Trent, I'd love to hear from you. You know, do you see any kind of um, yeah, any way in which AI DAOs could be you know have have relevance to uh, uh, to personal AIs? I know that you, for example, commented also on Fred Ersam's piece on blockchain-based machine learning marketplaces. So I uh, assume we maybe have some thoughts.
3: Yeah, I mean, I see um, uh, when it comes to personal data, uh, uh, there is, I think, what Yuval Harari raised, you know, government's top-down surveillance is a big concern and it's just happening, right? And surveillance there as well as the Facebooks of the world. And um, then, uh, you know, from this community, um you guys had David on talking about the idea of surveillance and it's in the book um, as a way to sort of counter it. Right. And if you don't do anything, then we're just going to get top down. Um, I see that um, uh, related to this, you know, it is an information economy. And so it's really important that you give the tools to the people to be able to monetize their own data, as well as any, um, comp- any uh, things around them that they create, right. Um, whether it's AI models, et cetera, and basically, just like we gave the power of um, encryption, decryption to the people, and that made a huge difference, you know, not only enable, enable e-commerce, but just all these other things, uh, including, you know, sort of the ultimate guarantees around freedom of speech, at least in so many ways. I see that it's also really important to give um, tools to people for managing their personal data. So think like Google Drive, but fully crypto secure, where, you know, when you you can give access to another person, it's simply by sending a token to that other person, right? And, and control that with your private key off your hardware wallet, et cetera. And um, just like, you know, Mark, I, I with what you've built, it's, uh, it's amazing, right? And it's built on all this research you've done in the past around object capability, et cetera. Um, Ocean, you know, we we um humbly carve out a small piece towards, uh, uh you know, helping the overall system, which is simply about managing personal data via private keys, et cetera. And it's designed conceptually to work well with, You know, the existing blockchain architectures of EVM, et cetera, but then also the one, um, um, things like Agoric in the future, right? It's, um, and ultimately it's, you know, just like not your keys, not your Bitcoin, not your keys, not your data. So, and then from that, you can have markets, um, and sharing of data, all this. And finally, I don't see it as an either or, you know, Scott McNeely of Sun and probably others have said many times, um, privacy is dead. And I see it actually as a shades of gray, right? when you have fine grained control, when every single human on the planet has fine grained control of what you share with whom and when, then and really powerful like crypto level tools to do this, um, maintaining state on secure blockchains, et cetera, that's really powerful. So you you get the shades of gray in a way that's power to the people. And so that's, you know, part of what we're trying to do with Ocean. And um it's, you know, very strong, like it it has philosophical roots. Um, but hopefully it can help make a difference as part of you know the overall picture here, such that yeah, the people have the power without you know giving up full privacy, et cetera, too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, one final thing too. I think that's maybe useful. So, Steve, um, I, I love your comment on this, um, on like what you ha- what you're doing with the, the personal data stuff, um, uh, AI, personal AIs. There's a framing that Simon de Rivier, who's um one of the you know mad scientists of blockchain and wonderful guy, um. He has this idea, um, it only exists if it's on the blockchain. So, um, you know, what is reality? What is perception? Right. Like it's my eyes and my brain are filtering everything that I see. And each of us has our own, um, idea of what that is. Right. And it's, um, all these crazy filters. So each of us has our own world model, et cetera. But on the blockchain, there is a very stark claim, not necessarily truth. Blockchains are truth machines. They are claim machines, but so, um, if it only exists if it's on the blockchain, going back to Simon, then rather than saying digital twin, what if the seat of identity is simply the thing on the chain, either, you know, the private key or the DID or whatever route you want um, around it? And then from that, you have these object capabilities and you have delegate and one of those. And of course, it has the list of resources, just like DAD spec has, et cetera. And that list of resources um, or ca- list of capabilities. Um And among that list of capabilities, it's access control to control your meat bake body, as well as seeing the sensors from your meat bake -bake body. And that's kind of hardwired in as this thing. But also then, from the blockchain, um, you know, root of identity, it has this personal AI, like you talked about, Steve. It has your bank account. It has your different crypto wallets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So um, it flips it around. You no longer, you know, instead of myself and my digital twin and my car and its digital twin and my pet and its digital twin, you, which turns into this crazy N-squared problem of complexity. Instead, everything is interacting on chain and everything has its own resources that happen to exist in the meat space. But, you know, meat space is not in real life. meat space, there's cyberspace and meat, 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 meat-baked space. They're all, you know, part of the same overall space, right? And it only exists if it's on the blockchain. So I'll stop there. But I, th- I found that as a really useful tool to simplify because it takes us away from N-squared to N again.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. Just a quick comment: um, some of the latest experiments in quantum mechanics show that there's no coherent uh, model of reality that agrees with what all observers see. So it kind of <laughs> made me think a little bit of that as you were talking about the n squared and how it works. It's very, very interesting perspective. Thanks,
5: uh, Steve. If you could uh, send a link to the um, to that quantum lack of global coherence, because That's, I find it surprising, Uh, but um, uh, in any case, the the, comment I wanted to make is going back to the contrast between our perspective and a lot of what I see in the literature about AI dangers is that the, there's, you know, that we have genuine uncertainty about hard takeoff versus soft takeoff. Uh, And on that on that, I agree with. There's a genuine uncertainty, uh, and you know, through pursuit of you know uh, things like uh, Eric Drexler's uh, comprehensive AI services and the way and uh, an observation of how AI naturally grows in the context of competition in the market. Uh, there's things we can do to help push things towards the soft takeoff scenario. The soft takeoff scenario is the one that's very compatible with this notion of an ecosystem of the balance of power between many AI agents doing different things. Um, but there is the possibility of the chain reaction uh, dynamic that leads to the hard takeoff. That's the thing that, that you know, um, uh, uh, Eliezer Yutkowski and Nick Bostrom uh, uh, keep returning to, uh, which is there's some one event where the thing goes into recursive self improvement and it suddenly catapults itself to um uh, to the superhuman ability and the the thing that i want to bring attention to is their view of how to deal with that danger is to ima- is to say okay well let's say that the hard takeoff is inevitable that uh, that combined with the uh the ability of it to do this unitary military takeover means that we're inevitably going to be ruled by by some unitary dictator forever so we need to devo- to to design a benevolent dictator that's not their terminology that's my terminology but i believe it accurately describes what they're proposing that we need to describe this we need to design this Utility function: this way for them to operate that's aligned with human behavior. This is their approach to the alignment problem: is to try to figure out uh, and design something that's that's aligned with human behavior, which seems to me to be, an, you know, an amazing recapitulation of the central planning fallacy. Um, but the thing that to me stands out as the bigger fallacy there is to imagine that a hard takeoff happens and the benign well-meaning philosophers who have designed this benign, um, uh, aligned, aligned, um, uh, utility function are in a position to decide what the goals are of this unitary military takeoff that happens. And, you know, when there's a sudden, strategic take you know sudden technological breakthrough that leads to a military takeover by a unitary power it's very unlikely that those of benign intent will be in the position of controlling that when there's a position of positions of great power attract those who want power and 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 uh so I think that there is no plausible scenario where a a hard takeoff happens and because a set of philosophers have designed some aligned way in which it could operate, that it is then operating in that way. If we imagine that in that scenario, the the benign philosophers, the well-meaning people are in that degree of control, they have another option, um, which is unlike anthropomorphic intelligence embodied in a biological creature, code is copyable. It is copyable and distributable simultaneously over the entire world instantaneously. If this technological breakthrough happens in an open manner, then the sudden worldwide distribution of the superintelligence mechanism allows everyone everywhere to use its power to pursue a great variety of different goals rather than to have some imagined agreement on one set of aligned goals. And then that diversity creates the ecosystem where each of those is is applying its superintelligent mechanism to pursue the different goals that that each of those copies are set to pursue. Um, so that's a way even to recover from the hard takeoff scenario in the hypo, in the, the weird hypothetical where the well-meaning people. Are in that degree of influence. And if the hard takeoff happens and well-meaning people are not in that degree, uh, not in degree of influence one way or the other, then it's pretty much game over. Um, And I think that the more important thing we should all be focused on is to try to arrange for the soft takeoff, is to get to the point that we've got the recursively self-improving systems But where the system that's self-improving is not a unitary entity, the system that's self-improving is more like a recursive self-improving industrial base, right? I mean, uh, chip companies used programs running on high-performing chips to design chips. We've got this recursive self-improving industrial base, which is why it's, it's um, improving at an exponential rate, why you get hockey stick effects. Um, uh, as humans become less and less of a bottleneck, that recursive self-improvement can, can can go much, much faster, but it doesn't need to be a unitary entity. It can be a diverse multi-goal industrial ba- base that has this self-improving uh you know, chain reaction effect and never becomes a unitary goal-seeking entity.
2: Wonderful. You tied it back to, uh, I think, to the beginning of the intro of the chapter, really. so it's nice that it comes full circle. Um, uh, Steve and Trench, do you have any final comments? Yeah, so I, I really love today's
1: session what a wild collection of different things. Um, the takeaway for me is, I mean, in some sense, what we want to do is to enable and empower the good. We can have good stuff happening and to disempower the bad, to prevent the bad things. And the picture I'm starting to see, I see the, the things that we've been talking about primarily, namely cooperative, uh, you know, people interacting with those they want to, doing the things they want to. That leads to a lot of good. Um, I think it's still kind of vulnerable to some of the bad. And so. I'm thinking of a kind of a dual thing where we have a kind of governance that is as small as possible, that allows as much good as possible to happen while pruning off all the disaster, you know, existential risk kind of stuff. So sort of existential risk with existential hope in one package. That's what I would love to see. And so I thought today's discussion really helped me a lot in that. So thank you.
3: Yeah, um, I found a, a really great conversation and thank you very much to have me as part of this. And I, I learned a lot from you, Steve, in your presentation. Thank you very much. And Mark, everything that you shared and, and the great questions from all the others too. So thank you very much. It was a really fun discussion. Um, uh, and I guess my takeaway is it feels like we haven't quite arrived at a great solution yet to towards, you know, minimizing the risk of um, AI is taking over, whether it's, you know, via, it's a good idea, you know, down one path to, towards, um, soft AI takeoff. And at the same time, you know, we have to watch for, um, you know, Bitcoin style paperclip clip maximizer sneaking up from behind as well. And at the same time, um, we have to also maybe start to reframe, you know, what does it mean to be human? Right. Um, so I think actually we should seriously consider that, um, um, but overall, I, I think it was a wonderful discussion. And uh, thank you once again for um, allowing me to be a part of it.
2: Thank you. Thank you both so, so much for joining. I thought it was like, yeah, super inspiring and definitely had like some x risk and X-Hope uh, aspects in it. Um, uh, I just posted the Gitcoin bounty in here. So if you now think that there's you have specific ways in which you can Im- want to improve on the chapter, there's a bounty for that. And I welcome you to... Uh, making use of it. That's like our way of being able to reward you a little bit for the amazing ideas that you bring us at these meetings. Um, and then next week is our final week uh, in the uh, book club. And we have Robin Hansen again, um, together with Stuart Armstrong from FHI. And we'll discuss um, the long-term dynamics of these intelligent games. And we'll yeah discussing where can, these, can we already say something about the very long-term dynamics of these games What does it mean if we cooperate eventually not only with um, only AIs as we now see them, but potentially also future other intelligences that may also themselves be AIs. So lots to think about. Thanks, everyone. I have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. I really appreciate everyone taking two hours of their time. And it was really wonderful. Thank you.
0: Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.